Hi, I'm Jordan Jones, editor of Latin America Reports. Welcome to our podcast, where we discuss Latin American stories for a global audience. Today, we'll be talking about what many are calling is the largest mass demonstration Colombia has seen in recent years. And we'll also give you a roundup of the most interesting stories of the week. This is Latin America Reports. Today is a special episode where you'll hear from Latin America Reports team who was on the ground during the Medellin protests, as well as the Bogota-based political analyst, Sergio Guzman. On Thursday, November the 24th, hundreds of thousands of Colombians took part in a national strike across the country. Although demonstrators were not protesting over one exclusive cause, they were united in their dissatisfaction with Duque's government's Paquetazo, which features a series of proposed labor and pension reforms, privatizations, and tax increases. Among the list of concerns and grievances is the lack of protection of the country's social leaders, farmers, indigenous peoples, and Afro-Colombians, as well as in compliance with the 2016 peace agreement. And in August, 18 children were killed in a military airstrike targeting FARC dissidents. Their deaths went undeclared by the state. At the time of recording this podcast, four people have been reported to have been killed in protest-related incidents. Today, we'll be talking to our journalist team who reported on the march in Medellin, as well as hearing from analyst Sergio Guzman about the situation in Bogota, the fallout from the protests, and what the future holds for the social movement and the country. Okay, team, we've got Patrick Edwards. Hey. Jim Glade. Hello. Francis Jenner. Hi, how you doing? And Sophie Foggin. Hi, Jordan. Uh, let's start with Francis. You were there. Can you give me like the general mood of what it was like on the ground in Medellin? Like what time did you get there? What was like the general atmosphere like? Hi, yeah, we got to Parque de las Luces at about nine, uh, which is where all of the people congregated before they started the march. And in general, it was a really positive mood. There was loads of energy, people were chanting, people had made up songs for the, for the day and were singing them. There were drums, guitars, street dancers. It was jubilant, I'd say. I mean, we went round and we were interviewing people and you could see that there was a lot of frustration about what was happening and all of the issues that you've, you've spoken about. But they were all optimistic that something was going to happen, that this march was really going to change something. Hey, Sophie, um, tell me about who you saw out there. Um, what were the demographics of the protesters? Um, did you get a read on some of the signs? some of the chants, uh, what was the general messaging from the people that were there? And was it one type of group um, or were there kind of different, different factions? The majority of demonstrators were young students or recently graduated students or young professionals. There were also pensioners there and middle-aged people protesting the pension reforms. There were representatives from trade unions, political parties, and then a collection of kind of random groups of people from like football fans to collectors of artists, musicians. So yeah, a really varied demographic. We actually spoke to the Central Workers Union the day before the protests and um, Jaime Mantoya, who I spoke to, said that the fact that the demographic was so varied and the representation was so wide wasn't actually a disadvantage. He said that this meant that the protests would uh, kind of reach a wider proportion of the Colombian population uh, and that this was definitely an advantage. Um, in terms of the messages of the protesters, the signs they were holding were also super varied. Some were clear in their opinions that their objective was 
for Duque to resign. Most said that they wanted the government just to listen to their demands. A particular focus of some of the signs that protesters were carrying um, were the 18 children who died in the military operation carried out against FARC dissidents, whose deaths went undeclared by the Colombian state. Lots of the signs held up quotations from Pres President Duque, who, when he was asked about this topic by a journalist, claimed not to know about the subject. So many protesters were quoting his words uh, and, you know, you could really feel their anger and frustration at his negligence. Jim, Sophie told us a lot about uh, some of the people who were participating in, in the protest. Um, I understand that you interviewed some of those bystanders, some of the people who weren't necessarily active um, in, in like walking through the streets. Uh, what was the general mood from them and, and what were some of the conversations you were having? So everyone I spoke with uh, supported generally at, at least one cause that the uh, protesters were protesting for. Spoke with a gentleman in his 50s who owned a watch repair kiosk on the main drag where the protest was leading. And he mentioned that, you know, he had two daughters. One was in private school and one was in public school. He, he mentioned that the daughter in public school was treated really well. Um, the public school, you know, provided um, free lunch and a number of different things. Um, and he said, you know what, like, I just don't think these kids need to be protesting for anything else. Um, but he was on board uh, with the fact that he wants the government to follow the peace process that was set out with the peace accords with the FARC dissidents. So that's one area in which he did kind of uh, latch on to the protesters and did support it. Another gentleman who ran a jewelry shop in the center of town, he was a business owner and he had mentioned that, you know, most of the business owners in the area decided to close their doors, whether it be for solidarity with the protesters or for fear of vandalism because they're near the route. But essentially he, he said that, you know, he was in solidarity with his workers in that um, some of the pension reforms and the labor reforms, and I quote, were measures that do not contribute to the quality of life of ordinary Colombians. You really did see a level of solidarity with the protesters, even if they didn't feel the urge to participate in the protest themselves. Sophie, I want to I kick a question back to you. Um, we have an idea of how it felt to be out there um, and what some of the responses and conversations were like on the day. But what was the actual protest like? Was it a stationary demonstration or was there some movement? And you know, was it like a unified front? Can you tell me a little bit about like the actual direction of the protest? Yeah, so the march started around 6, 6.30 in the morning. Groups of students met at various universities around the city and they marched towards the centre of Medellin where a kind of meeting point was established in one of the central parks, Parque de las Luces. And from there, protesters kind of gathered for a couple of hours and then around midday, the march set off from the centre and did kind of a loop around the city and looped back into the centre and finished at another park in the centre of the city close to the university. Of Antioquia. Uh, hey Patrick, so Sophie kind of gave us the rundown of the, of the march uh, throughout the city and from what I understand, from what Francis said and from what um, some of the, the bystanders and participators also mentioned that the general environment was peaceful and that there were very seldom incidents of, of violence, uh, of outbursts or anything like that. And so take me to 
what the scene looked like a little after 5 p.m., after many people had dispersed and gone home, and there were still people lingering around the public university uh, of Antioquia. Tell me what you saw, what time did you get there, uh, and what was the general atmosphere like? So uh, I came out again a bit before 6 p.m. to the university, where scenes did contrast quite starkly with the march which Francis described just a moment ago. I didn't see how things escalated, but what I did see was a very agitated crowd made up almost entirely of students throwing rocks at police and setting fires along the roads with chants of resistencia. Police responded with tear gas and a few shots of rubber bullets. Uh, and when a big armored police vehicle came down the road to kill the fires with water cannons, one protester actually managed to set the front part of the vehicle alight with a Molotov. There were moments of vandalism, which I saw as well. Um, people smashing up bus stops, um, ripping off bins from, um, from lampposts. But in fairness, I did see one of the protesters call them out, saying that their fight was against the police, not against the city. Thank you so much, team. I think we have a good idea of, of what it felt like to be in Medellin um, during that first day of the, of the protest. But what about the situation in Bogota? Uh, for that, on Monday, Sophie spoke to Sergio Guzman, who was a political analyst and participated in the march. Sophie, could you talk a little bit about what he said? Yeah, so I wanted to find out how the protests unfolded in Bogota, Colombia's capital city. Obviously much bigger than Medellin, so I asked him about the mood and the atmosphere on the day of the national strike. Right, well, well Thursday was, was a very interesting day. And at first, you know, it was more like the usual suspects, like the students, the, the workers' unions, the indigenous groups. But then as time went on, more and more people added themselves to to the march, mm -hmm. which was super interesting and, and, and quite unexpected. And the, the protest basically until 4 p.m. Mm -hmm. was, was very quaint and was very solemn. It was fun, it was, you know, it was diverse, yeah. but it was a hodgepodge of people. Right. Then at 4 p.m. you had the first initial clashes between the ESMA, mm -hmm. which is the anti-mutiny branch of the police, mm -hmm. and some protesters who were a very, 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 very small minority of those people who came out in spite of the rain. Huh? Yeah. I think it's important to point out that it was raining in Bogotá and people still persisted. Mm -hmm. um, but then these clashes basically opaqued a lot of the reasons why people were protesting because that was exactly what many on the right were, were expecting. So interestingly, in Medellin and in Bogotá, the protests didn't stop on Thursday. They've continued. And one of the main forms they've continued in is via a cacerolazo, which is essentially people banging pots and pans in protest. I asked Guzman how the protests have unfolded in Bogota since Thursday and whether they, the citizens in the capital city had been experiencing the same kind of thing. At 6 or 7 p.m. you had a massive casterolazo, which was uh, yeah. people banging their pots and pans either from their window or they came out actually to block the streets and, and protest. Now, we hadn't had a caserolazo that I remember since 1996. The caserolazo was citywide, it was in rich neighborhoods, it was in poor neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. it, it showed a, a very massive discontent. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, you know, the protests continued the day, the day after and the day after, and you started seeing more police violence, more protest violence, reports of looting, uh, mm -hmm. which, which are completely abhorrent and abominable. Mm -hmm. um, 
but that I must uh, make point that it was the, the vast minority of events. The government's response so far is, is actually begging for people to come out more. We then spoke a bit about President Ivan Duque's response to the protests. I think that, that many of the things that Duque has said about the protests focused on the security issues that he was most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. He focused on order, he focused on countering vandalism, but he did not address or legitimize the reasons that the protesters were marching for. Right. It, it basically told protesters, were, this isn't big enough for us to address. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in a way, that begged the question for other people to come out and say, well, what if we come out? Will that be bigger then? Will that mm-hmm. warrant the government's response? There's been a lot of controversy over the police response to the protests, especially that of the ESMAD, the riot police. I asked Sergio about it. The vast majority of police units have been restrained. I don't think that it's fair to broaden a critique of the police saying that they haven't been responsible. Mm -hmm. I think that there are units of the police Mm -hmm. that have been much more aggressive towards protesters than others. And, And the government has launched investigations to that. Mm-hmm. I think though that it warrants a, a reflection on the role of the anti-mutiny police and anti-disturbance police right. and their tactics and their methods because in some instances there were protests and, and there are videos on green all over the place. Mm-hmm. There were protests that were very calm and peaceful and contained mm-hmm. and police threw uh, stun grenades and um, tear gas yeah. uh, to those protesters and that Basically, that creates the unifying narrative mm-hmm. for many of these protesters. That that's that becomes a, a motive in and of itself right. to protest. And so, in that sense, I think that the government needs to be much more temperate in the way that it deals with with these protests, because that will be a reflection upon themselves. Yeah. Then I asked him, kind of ultimately, how successful he thought the marches and the protests have been. Well, I, I, I think it was effective in that it called attention to people. It definitely was was a different protest than mm-hmm. the ones that we've seen before. Yeah. It definitely, I think that the Cacerolazo, in mm-hmm. a way, was much more meaningful than the protest that happened during the day. Not to undermine that what happened to, during the day was important, but what happened during the day, it was anticipated. The government knew it was in for a rough day. Yeah. But the Cacerolazo and the continuation of the Cacerolazo puts us in new territory. Like that, that changes things. Because people have very seldomly used that, that way of protesting peacefully, yeah. that way of showing their dissatisfaction. And one protest that, that so broadly uh, reverberated throughout the cities. Yeah. And because it was not just in Bogotá that this happened, it was throughout the country that this happened. So to round off the conversation, I asked Sergio what he thought would happen this week and beyond. Um, He explained that because the protest was so diverse, the outcome was definitely very difficult for him to predict. But here's what he said. I think that the government and the protesters are not going to find really common ground on Wednesday. I think that the positions are so far apart between them that a productive discussion on on the merits of of the country are not going to happen anytime soon. So what I believe is that this is going to continue for a while longer. I don't think it's going to turn violent, but I do think that given the politics are continuing, 
incidental to police response, the potential for violence is there. Uh, I think many of the protesters themselves have called repeatedly for non-violent protests, yeah. uh, which is which is encouraging. But I also think that there is an overt effort to cast the protesters as violent, as looters, mm-hmm. as you know. I think it's going to continue. I don't know for how long, but I think it is going to continue. Thanks so much, Sophie. Now we're going to have Patrick tell us what we're watching this week. In Uruguay, the second round presidential elections took place on Sunday between conservative La Calle Po and center-left Daniel Martinez of the Broad Front Party, which has been in power for over a decade. But the vote was so close that there will be a recount of 35,000 challenge votes, and the results will not be released until later this week. Bolivians will take to the polls again in 120 days after the previous presidential election sparked mass protests and caused former President Evo Morales to seek political exile in Mexico. He and his vice president will not be able to run in upcoming elections, but his party, Movement for Socialism, will. Chile's national police force, called Carabineros, have come under scrutiny for their role repressing violent protests, especially after General Enrique Basaletti said that shotguns were like chemotherapy, as they kill some good cells and some bad ones. The National Institute for Human Rights says that 23 people have been killed and over 2,300 injured. Thanks for listening to this special episode on protests in Colombia. For more interviews and pictures from the march on Thursday in Medellin, please visit our website, latinamericareports.com, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. That's all we've got for this week. Thanks. I'm your host, Jordan Jones. Reporting for this episode was carried out by the Latin America Reports team, Francis Jenner, Sophie Foggin, Patrick Edwards, and Jim Glade. Francis also edited this episode. Thanks.